0: Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. On Friday, a fee. On Sunday, a king. Late down. Welcome to Epiphany's Sunday Sermons, a podcast ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. To learn more about our church, visit our website at epiphanyligonier.org. It was uh, back in 1998 that uh, DreamWorks put out like a Disney-fied version ...of the life of Moses called The Prince of Egypt. Remember that version of of the movie, The Prince of Egypt? It was a cartoon version of the early life of Moses, of the Exodus story. And it was a big deal back in, in 1998. It had all these famous actors like Val Kilmer, right? Everyone remembers Val Kilmer. And Michelle Pfeiffer and Sandra Bullock. I mean, you can't get more 90s than some of these names. And then you had Sir Patrick Stewart and Dame Helen Mirren... Um, Steve Martin, Martin Short, I mean, just an all-star cast of voice actors who all got together and retold the the Moses story with, like, musical numbers and chariot chase scenes. But it's a good movie, and I like it. It actually doesn't skip, like, the hard parts. Like, it's actually really, really scary when the plague of the, the firstborn comes, and it's very sad, and you get the real emotional heaviness of the story. But one of the best parts of that film is the part where Moses meets his future father-in-law, Jethro. And Jethro, in that movie, sings this wonderful song and dance number called Heaven's Eyes. And it's fantastic. I mean, I actually, like, confess to you, when I listen to this song, I, like, cry. And I'm an emotional guy. I cried a lot of things. But, yeah, in an animated kids' movie about Moses. I cried at this song. Uh, because the, the point of the song was that you and I as human beings can't understand ourselves, and we can't understand the world around us unless we look through heaven's eyes first. And it's a sort of a song of grace offered to Moses, who is still trying to understand the fact that he murdered one of his fellow Egyptians. And um, this song and dance number, um, it's remarkable. I I do weep about it. Um, Which is to say that I think in that movie, Jethro, the character of Jethro, this priest in Midian, the priest, the high priest in Midian, uh, he is one of the Bible's, I think, most underrated characters. I love this guy. Um, He is the father-in-law of Moses, but what we see in our reading today and next week and just through the Bible is that Jethro is this avenue of grace through which Moses receives so many blessings in his life. He receives a family, he receives a wife, he receives wisdom about how to be a leader. But in our story today, um, Jethro is the one who is acted upon in the sense that Jethro uh, is going to make a life-changing decision in our reading today. Um, that will have ripples throughout eternity, even to our own time. And so I want to speak to you this morning um, and next week, primarily this morning, about Jethro. Um, we're in this series. We've been in a series for a couple of weeks now. where We're following Israel in life after the Exodus. What happens when Israel leaves Egypt behind, right? They've been freed from slavery. They embrace this life of total dependence on God. And and so far, they've really struggled, haven't they? Um, if you've been here for the past couple of weeks, you know that Um, They're trying really hard to trust that God is going to provide water and food in the desert and safety from um, other tribes. But what frequently happens is Israel lets their fear take over, and they get angry at Moses. And they start to, to complain and grumble towards Moses, as opposed to just asking God for help. So over the past few weeks, Israel has really had to learn that even though there's no water, God can provide it even from a rock. Even though it doesn't look like there's food, God can provide it in the form of this manna, this sort of um, small seed that makes a flower which you can use to bake with. Uh, they learn that God provides safety from people like Amalek, the um, the warring tribe who tried to come in and defeat Israel in the desert because they were afraid that Israel would take all of their land and resources. And yet God provides every step of the way. In fact, it's important to note that People, Israel leaving Egypt would have been international news. Um, that Egypt, the great superpower of the day, right? Israel just up and left. And imagine if this massive, you know, probably six figures of, of populace, this, this massive group of people left and they were now living a nomadic life and traveling somewhere else in the ancient world. Huge, huge news. Everyone would have heard that Israel, these people, the slaves, had just up and left. And of course, there'd be stories about what happened and and what was God doing. And and what happens in our reading today is news makes it back to Midian. Midian is a long way away from Egypt. It's not even on the the Sinai Peninsula. It's a long way away. News makes it all the way back to Midian, where Moses had lived in exile for a number of years, to Jethro, his father-in-law. And Moses had sent his son, his two sons, and his wife back and said, Listen, things are going to be dangerous here, so go and, and stay with them and be safe. And he had done so, but now that the people were free, uh, Jethro says, I can come back and I can visit my son in law and restore the family. And that's where our reading picks up. So in your bulletins, you can follow along. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father in law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for the people of Israel. And how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt, right? He had heard about it, right? The people had been talking about it. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home along with her two sons. The name of one was Gershom, the name of the other was Eliezer. And, and Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. They're on their way to Sinai. Remember, we, we've talked about that as part of where they're headed to. The mountain of God is Mount Sinai. And they're on the way there, and uh, Jethro comes and says, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and two sons with her. So Israel is approaching Mount Sinai, um, and, and God is leading them, and Jethro comes to reunite Moses with his family. And it's a really happy reunion, I think. The text is telling us it's a happy reunion. I love this phrase, they went into the tent and they inquired about each other's welfare. You know, That's sort of an ancient way of saying, it's good to see you. How you been? How are you doing? And this is how the text describes it. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him, as would have been culturally appropriate. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. And then Moses told his father-in-law that all the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake all the hardship that had come upon them on the way and how the Lord had delivered them. So Moses tells the whole story. He tells from the very beginning, right? Moses left um, his father-in-law to go back and free the slaves. And so he tells his father-in-law, presumably the whole story, the plagues, the, the let my people go, the parting of the Red Sea. And not only that, but what happens on the other side? He's telling them about water from the rock and he's telling them about the defeat of the Amalekites. And here's what happens. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good the Lord had done to Israel, in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. I think this is fairly remarkable, right? Because Jethro is, the text tells us he's the priest of Midian. Um, And elsewhere it says he is a, like the high priest of Midian. Now, we don't know a whole lot about the Midianites uh, historically, this group of people. Um, But we do know a couple of things. We know, one, they were a tribal nomadic group. And we know, two; they hung out with another country. Some of them hung out with another group called the Moabites. And the Moabites, we know more about their religion uh, because they were into two really big religious traditions. They were into idol worship and they were into Baal worship. Now, 30 seconds to update you on what that means. Idol worship was an ancient practice where you had this small sort of token or series of tokens that you carried around with you in your nomadic lifestyle. They would have been made out of, like, wood cast in gold or silver, maybe some precious gems in there, too. And when you set up your tent, you put your little um, sort of idols up, and that's where you devoted your religious impulses. You would pray to them, you would ask them for these things, little idols. And so that is a tradition that is very common in the ancient Near East. It's a tradition that God says is dumb. God says, why would you worship like the thing? It's wood and, and, and gold and silver and gems. Like, why not worship the one who made the wood and the gold and the gems? And so the Ten Commandments are going to explicitly say no idols. And um, yet, it is very likely that Jethro, as the high priest of Midian, would have been very well versed and have his own idols that he was carrying with him. So that's first thing, Baal, uh, idol worship. The second thing is Baal. Who is Baal? It's B A apostrophe A L. Baal is the ancient god of weather and fertility. He's sort of like the ancient Near East version of Zeus, but Zeus was like thunder and lightning. This god is like rain and good herds and even human fertility too. And we know about Baal not just from the Bible, but we know about Baal from, like, you can go to museums and find little statues of Baal all over, right? Like, we know this is a a whole religious tradition. And um, it was very common for the ancient Near East to have Baal as the core of their worship in this time and place. And so what did Baal worship look like? Well, it looked like a number of things, including, we might call them, uh, acts of human fertility outside of marriage, like ritual prostitution and things like that. And Israel is going to dabble with Baal throughout their entire uh, sort of timeline as a nation. It's going to be a big deal. But for purposes of our reading today, Jethro, as the high priest of Midian, would have been well-versed in Baal worship. He would have been well-versed in this tradition of worshiping Baal. So we can talk about that more later, but Jethro coming into our reading today likely has very little experience understanding or worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Like the one God. The God that pulled Israel out of Egypt and gave them their freedom. This is not Jethro's thing. Jethro is like the archbishop of paganism for his people. And yet, here he is saying, look at what your God did for you. Look at what your God did for you. This is remarkable. And if you keep reading our passage, it gets even more remarkable. Here's what continues to happen. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hands of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father in law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father in law before. This is not just sort of like, hey, your God did good for you, right? This is, hey, good for you and good for your God, right? This is not just sort of an acknowledgement that someone else had a valid spiritual experience. And what we have in our reading today is is something that really can only be described as a religious conversion. That the, the Archbishop of Midian paganism looks at what has happened in his son's family and looks at this great moment of deliverance from Egypt and says, wow, your God is better. than any of the other gods I know about. Your god's better than Baal. Your god's better than my idols. I don't know about my idols. They have not gotten me out of slavery anytime soon. But your god did all this for you. And what does then Jethro do? He engages in ancient Near East worship. He, of his own flock and of his own herds, makes an animal sacrifice to this god. They build a big altar, which is a fancy way of saying kind of a big fire pit, a big grill, And they then light the fire, slaughter the animal, and cook it and present it to God. And then the text ends with Jethro joining the elders of Israel and Moses and Aaron together in a feast under God, right? Well, a feast before God. It's almost as if, right, to translate this into our modern parlance, it's almost as if Jethro is taking communion with the people of Israel. He's making animal sacrifices and eating a meal with them under God and saying, your God is better than anything else I'm in. It's a remarkable story of conversion in our reading today. Um, it's one where the, the Jethro leaves behind his old religious ways and embraces this new God who's doing something new and beautiful and better. So it is a, entirely appropriate that we have our friends from Anglican Frontier Mission here today. Because this is not just a story about conversion, it's a story about mission. It's a story about cross-cultural engagement in which somebody from Israel had a relationship with somebody from Midian and communicated to them the rescuing work of God for his people out of slavery, and the other person converted. Um, That our story today is one of mission and evangelism. And so it is good that we read about Jethro's conversion. In fact, the Jewish people look to this reading and you can go back through sort of Jewish history and rabbi, rabbinical commentary. This is considered to be the first time that an outsider has converted to Judaism. Even the Jewish people look at this and say, Jethro converted. Um, and so it's really important to look at this passage and say, um, th- there's a lot going on here about God's mission to the world. I'll offer you maybe three observations and then we'll close. First, uh, I want to put an observation before you about the nature of the Bible. Because a lot of people will say very silly things that are completely untrue. Like the Old Testament's the god the God of wrath and anger, and the New Testament's the God of sort of love and grace. And like you don't have like there's no easier way to tell that someone's never read the daggone book than to hear somebody say that. (laughs) It's just so wrong. Um, because grace is everywhere in the Old Testament, and also there's a lot of law in the New Testament too. I digress. But one of the things that's related to that is some people tend to think, well, God only wanted to work with Israel in the Old Testament. He didn't care about anybody else. And it's not until the New Testament that God sort of blossoms out and starts talking to people outside of Israel. And that is fundamentally untrue. Because in our reading today, what we have is the conversion of the Archbishop of Paganism in, in, in Midian. And, and what's going to happen? Jethro's going to go home and he's going to tell all of his friends about how God, this God, this one God, not the pantheon of gods, but this one God, did a miraculous thing. And so we have the, this good news about the saving work of God leaving Israel and going out to the rest of Midian. It's no coincidence, by the way, that the the story before this is when Amalek, the bad king, attacked Israel. And Israel had to sort of militia up and fight back because Amalek looks at what happens to Israel and says, Ooh, no, these guys are a threat. I don't like them at all. I'm going to attack them. That's one way an outside nation looks at Israel. But Jethro is the opposite. He looks and hears about what has happened in Israel and says, well, your God is fantastic. And so this is a story about the God of the old Testament caring very much about people across the world that the implications of what happened in in Israel being saved is to be broadcast for everyone to hear. So we look at this story as as part of God's biblical Genesis to Revelation vision of people hearing about the saving work of God and saying, oh, my God doesn't save like that. And then making a, a conversion experience and repenting of their sins and offering sacrifices, however that looks in particular time. First thing to observe in this story. Second thing to observe in this story, I think there's an important family dynamic at play. And I think we should pay attention to it. I think we should. Because this happens in the direction of a son-in-law to his father-in-law, right? I mean, the only thing that would have been more miraculous is a son-in-law to his mother-in-law. But father-in-law, it's pretty miraculous. Um, because what you have here is, is someone who is making a conversion within the context of family. And I think many of us have in this room this desire to see family members, uh, people who we are closest to, who aren't um, sort of attending church or they don't have this sort of faith that you'd like to see them have. Uh, many of us in church would do well to sort of look at a dynamic at play here that I want to share with you, um, which is to say, um, I think there's a level of respect and relationship here that's really unique. Uh, because some of us in this room have what we might call the powdered bum syndrome, the powdered bum syndrome. And the powder bum syndrome is um, people don't usually take life advice from people whose diapers they have changed, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so, so think about it, right? Like, if your adult child comes to you and says, "Hey, I, I have some financial advice I'd like to give you about your retirement funds," what do you say? You say, "That's nice, but I have an advisor in myself." Right. Or, or what if your, your daughter comes to you and says, hey, I know we've always cooked the family favorite dish this way, but maybe if we just added a little bit of this, it could really make things better. You're like, nice kid. You know, good heart. You don't need that advice. Um, that we as human beings, we're much more uh, likely to take advice from our peers and to give advice and receive advice from our peers than we are to the generation below us. Um, because what? We remember them when we were changing their diapers. Of course, we remember them as young people. How would they have anything to add to our lives? I don't think that's something that Jethro has towards Moses. Um, he doesn't have powdered bum syndrome, as it were. And the flip side of that, the flip side of powdered bum syndrome is sort of like alienation of the teenager, right? Like, oh, the parents, they just don't understand, right? And you, you, you... Teenagers and, and and the young people, they're like, well, you know, my parents, they just don't understand what I'm going through, and if they, they, their generation is different from my generation, how could they possibly understand? And so what do they do? They go to their peers, right? Their peers and get life advice and swap advice. They don't cross the generational divide. And, you know, give our young people today some credit, because it's like, I know I wasn't cyber bullied when I was a kid. It's like, how am I going to learn figure out how to like you know deal with cyber bullying? I have zero experience with being catfished online. And if you don't know what being catfished online is, well, you're proving the teenagers' point because that's a thing that, that happens. And so there's a sense in which you know the, the teens. It's like, yeah, you can go to your the parents and the and the elders for advice, but that doesn't always happen, right? It's sort of you know the boomers and the millennials and the Gen X and the Gen Z there's this conflict that exists and I don't see it between Jethro and Moses. I just don't see it. And so I think there's there's something in our reading today that says even though there's honor and deference, there's a deeper relationship here. And if we can divide and sort of get across these like generational gaps that we put in place because of our pride, um, then I think we're much more likely to be able to say, not just like, hey, maybe we could tweak the family recipe, but hey, can I, can I tell you about what God did for me at church today? Can I tell you what God did for me the other week? Can I tell you about sort of the blessing that happened um, a while back? Did I ever tell you about the time I prayed for this when you were a kid and it came true? Mom, Dad, did I tell you how much I prayed for this job before I got it? I, I think there's a sense where if you can get rid of that generation gap and that frustration and sort of, you know, we're so different, we're so um, we're unable to talk to each other, if, if you can break down that barrier, um, you'll get to have not just better intimacy with your family members, but you'll get to be able to talk to them about Jesus in a way that's easily received. So I think that's a dynamic at play here between Moses and Jethro. So mission is part of God's plan from the beginning, and don't buy into sort of this generational difference nonsense. And finally, I'd like to point out that our reading ends... With a sacrifice, it ends with a sacrifice. Um, because Moses and Jethro, they they offer a sacrifice to God, but they do it in the context of like like God hasn't told them to do it. The law of Moses, which outlines all the sacrifices and that whole sacrificial system, that doesn't that hasn't come yet chronologically in the Bible. They just intuit this on their own. They think, well, if this God is so good, then it makes sense that I should write him a great thank you card by offering a sacrifice to him. And this God is so good and wonderful, I should offer um, an I'm sorry to heaven by offering a a sacrifice. Moses and Jethro and and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob too, they intuit that there's a relationship with God that involves sacrifice. That That sacrifice is the way to sort of deal with the fact that we are small and then the heavens look out for us. And sacrifice is the way to sort of recognize and apologize for those moments in which the moral fabric of the universe is torn apart because of our actions, thoughts, and deeds. Sacrifice is the way, and that's how they intuited it in the Old Testament, but it makes a lot of sense later on that, of course, um, the book that has Moses and Jethro offering a slaughtered animal to God has, as its core, the offering of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ becomes that great sacrifice which accomplishes in reality what the Old Testament sacrifice is hoped for and longed for, which is a restored relationship with God, a blessing here below, and an eternal benevolence from heaven, which sets us up in the long term for a happy and long life under the watchful eye of providence. But there's something going on here in which Moses and Jethro, celebrating the redeeming work of God and offering a sacrifice, points to the great New Testament sacrifice of Jesus' Himself, They don't know about the Lamb of God who takes away the sins in the world, but they can offer a lamb uh, as an acknowledgment of their gratitude and repentance. It's the same idea, different orders of magnitude, and a different source, because um, God offers to us the sacrifice we could not make for ourselves. So even in this story, we know that the main saving work is the redemption of Israel being pulled out of slavery, but we're looking ahead to Jesus as well, even at this part of the Old Testament. Um, So one final illustration, we'll close. Um, Some of you know this, some of you don't, but we switch up our order of service at epiphany here every once in a while, every couple of months. And the liturgy we have today is special um, because one of the great things about our our faith tradition is that um, we all sort of use the same core book, but we adopt it. Uh, We adopt the Book of Common Prayer, but we adopt it given our circumstances. You know, we in America... Have a lot of similar prayers to the church in England. We just don't pray for, I guess now it's the king. We don't pray for the king. Uh, we pray for our executives, right? And the same way they don't pray for our president. But it's not just America and it's not just England. It's the whole world and our Anglican connections. Um, that we all modify the same core theology and liturgy to suit our on the ground needs. And what's happening today, what you may not know, is that the one we do today, right? The one where we at the end of the service, we throw things to the cross, right? We, we, we get rid of them. We make the hand motions, and we pray in, in sort of a simpler English. Um, this was actually a, an order of service developed by our, our brothers and sisters in Kenya. Um, this is a, a liturgy that comes straight from Africa. And so as we're talking about missionary things, we're, we're even in the core of how we order our worship today. We're saying God cares about the whole world. God cares about the whole world. And uh, we want the whole world to come and to see and know him. So it's right that we order our service today uh, as our African brothers and sisters do. It shows the global nature of the gospel because Jethro, again, is going to take this message of God back to his tribe. Word is going to get around. Ditch your idols. Forget Baal. This God in Israel, the one God, he loves and cares for his people enough to rescue them from slavery and care for them in the desert. What other God is there? that loves their people like this. There isn't one. There isn't one. And so today we acknowledge the message of God's redeeming work passed on to us. We have been told the saving work of God, in particular the work of Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. And so that it is right we respond to him like Jethro in worship. In Jesus' name, amen. On Friday of the on Sunday day. Ligonier, Pennsylvania.